From Dirty Spoon Media, it's The Second Helping. Extended conversations from some of our favorite guests on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. I'm Jonathan Ammons. By now, Susie Phillips is a stalwart of the Asheville restaurant scene. She started showing up in the headlines around 2010 when she became a driving force behind the burgeoning food truck movement in Asheville. Until then, there were no laws permitting food trucks in Asheville, and Susie became an activist and entrepreneur that made it happen. Through a long string of brutal and confrontational city council meetings, she and her fellow activists laid out their case and lit the fuse for what would become Asheville's food truck boom. Susie's truck, Gypsy Queen Cuisine, became quite the smash hit as well. For Susie and several other chefs, that investment really paid off. Just five years later, she opened her first brick-and-mortar restaurant, also conveniently named Gypsy Queen. She also just opened her second restaurant here in town called Simple, and it is just that, simple. Healthy breakfast and lunch items that, much like a good conversation with Susie, are rewarding and nourishing. But just talking about her restaurant experience doesn't even begin to touch on her story. A refugee in this country at the age of 15, she grew up in and escaped the Lebanese Civil War. And she was kind enough to share with us what it was like growing up and learning to cook in that conflict. Lebanon, the whole country, Connecticut size or New yeah. Jersey size. So it's a little tiny ass dot, like right on the map. And it's tiny and complicated and intense and it's beautiful. Like four million Christians and four million Muslims, Muslims living in the same in that in a state the size of in a country the yeah. size of Connecticut. And it's grown. You know, yeah. the it used to be mostly Christian, some Druze, a lot of Armenians and some um, Muslims. Yeah. Now well in the 70s, in 19, when, when really it hit to the surface, um, it was in 1975. And that's when the Palestinians were pretty much shoved out of Palestine, Israel now, and had no home. So they migrated to Lebanon, South Lebanon, and then Jordan, which mm-hmm. is the back of Israel now. So... Jordan didn't want any part of it, so they pretty much bulldozered them out of Jordan, and a few were kept, stayed there. But most of South Lebanon was just full of Palestinian refugees. And at once upon a time, people lived peacefully together. You had the Israelis or the Jewish people, that Israel didn't exist then. And then the Christians, the Druze, the Muslims, everybody was fine next to each other. And then when when it went to a head and the Palestinians had no power and the country was changed thanks to Britain, um, you, you started having these little groups that were angry, rightfully yeah. so. PLO was formed um, with anger and no word, danger, starts forming and people just don't really care what's going on and they just start killing each other and just wanting a part of a life and a home. So Palestinians were that at then. Now it's two million Syrians. Yeah. In Lebanon. Refugees. Quarter of the population yes. is Syrian, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because it's so tiny. So it's such a tiny country. Yeah. And it's holding so many people and then you still have these little groups of like Hezbollah, you know, they they take care of their people, but they're vicious. And they were planted in Lebanon in, sometime in the early 80s, mm-hmm. late 70s from Iraq or no, Iran, sorry. And so they basically, th- Lebanon became a launching pad so Israel can get taken out and Palestine bringing back. And in the process, Syria is above us. And Syrians, they've, they just, it's such a complicated history. Their leaders back to back were killing their people. You know, there's, so we had beef with Syria, Palestine or Palestinians at one point. And Hezbollah, who started calling themselves Lebanese. A country the size of Connecticut with no good neighbors. 
no good neighbors. <laughs> and we were caught in the middle. Like we were just like getting bombarded from north, from the from the east. The west is all Mediterranean Ocean and then from the south. So we were screwed. So we reached out to our um, friends in the U.S., uh, Italy and France, and we had all these troops from different countries coming to help us, and nobody, nobody could do anything. Yeah. So, I was born in '72, and immediately, like that's all I remember. Yeah. Waking up to gun gunshots, snipers, bombs. Um, where I lived was somewhat of a safe place. It's not. It wasn't. It was sheltered, kind of, but we definitely got hit a lot of times, too. Yeah. But when when it was on fire, which what we used to say a lot, Beirut's on fire. You go on a, the balcony and you can see Beirut. We lived on like a little mountain overlooking the ocean. Wow. And you can see smoke or fire. or, And then it got really divided, West Beirut and East Beirut. <clears throat> but it's so weird Growing up in that situation, you don't know any better. Yeah. You still live. You never saw the Holiday Inn when it was the Holiday Inn. <laughs> no, I didn't, but I heard. I heard. <laughs> and there there were so many other like great hotels that my mom would tell me in Beirut. It was Paris of the Middle East. And to me, yeah. it's it was the whole time. Even with its damaged beauty, the bullets and bombs and ricocheted and like the buildings... It was still beautiful. The culture never left, even though it was no. the buildings did. They they lived more. Yeah, you know. At, so when it's quiet, and sometimes it can be quiet for days or months, and sometimes it can be just quiet for an hour, and you took advantage of that hour or a day, and you went out and you ate. We picnicked. You know, we went to the beach, and you just learn how to adjust and live around that. Literally coming out of the bunker to go to the... Literally. Wow. Yeah. I remember one time, we spent a lot of time in the shelter here and there. And we kind of started running out of food in the shelter, but the house is right above. And my mom would take every little second that it was quiet and run upstairs and get whatever we needed, lentils, rice, or, you know, more water or what have you. You never knew how long it was going to take. Yeah. So it was, uh, it's an experience that I will never trade. When did, when did, so how long were, did you live in that? How, how, when did you finally? We left in 88. Oh, wow. So. So that's after the embassy bombing. Oh, after, yeah. 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 I have a cousin that still lives, uh, I mean, that works for the American embassy. And he was there when it happened. Really? Mm-hmm. He had oh just gotten out. He, they just picked up some some American soldier just came in and they were taking him somewhere else. And as soon as he left, it just went boom. Man, yeah, because that was the it happened with the embassy <coughs> and then the airport right after, right? Yeah, and then the airport was shut down. Ah. And this was in the eighties, in the early eighties. Wow. Yeah, around Thanksgiving time. Yeah, it, and then it happened again. They changed embassies out of West Beirut. But my dad's American, so I have the American citizenship immediately. I don't even have my Lebanese citizenship. They're not giving mm. out any. And it's basically who your dad is. So if your dad, that's who you are. So I'm American, oh, even wow. though I really totally consider myself Lebanese. So during that time... We always kept our options open of escaping. And uh, my brother and I have American citizenship. So once in a while, we'd have to go to West Beirut to the American embassy before it got bombed and get our passports renewed and our papers. So my mom would have to, and my dad was never around. He worked in the oil business, Dubai and Mm -hmm. Nigeria. Um, So we hardly saw him. My mom was the queen of everything. So to go to West Beirut, we had to go through Syrian and Palestinian checkpoints. And visibly, you can tell who's Christian and who's not. Yeah. Clearly, immediately by the way you dress and how you carry yourself. My mom being 
a beautiful woman. She was a superstar. She looked like a movie star. She would um, hide us in the car. So we had this Volkswagen um, station wagon. So it's long. We laid down behind the seats on top of one another, my brother and I. And she would cover us with bags of bulgur, parsley, <laughs> tomatoes. So it seems that she's taking groceries. And she would flirt her way through every checkpoint. Oh, and luckily, yeah. we yeah, it, it, we never got caught. But she had a Palestinian friend in West Beirut that she would take food for. And she lived, if you can imagine, those buildings that just have no glass. It's apartment buildings. It's just laundry lines with clothes hanging right. to dry and bullet holes everywhere. And she's just, you know, living with no furniture hardly or anything. So she'd take her food and then get us back out. And we did that a few times. Wow. Your mother grew up in Palestine, right? No, my mom grew up in Lebanon. Okay. Yeah. But she did make it to Palestine with a friend as a runaway. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I forget the story totally. Yeah. Um, World War Two. Um, we got our independence from France. Mm -hmm. So we um, were very, we consider ourselves very French. Yeah. So she got, she was a housemaid pretty much at a very young age. And she got taken advantage of by the generals that she worked for. Mm. And she couldn't tell her parents because they threatened her life and her family. They were from a very poor, poor household. So her and her friend that worked in the same place that were both getting sexually abused decided to walk to Palestine where her family was. And they did. They escaped. Mm -hmm. And my mom used to tell me how that's why her, the reason her dad died because of her, her, a heartache. Like she, there's no phones. You know, you can't. She didn't, she's illiterate. She never went to school. She immediately went into work for people. So yeah, that's when she went to Palestine. And we revisited Palestine in 85 for Christmas. Oh, really? And that was, whew, that was intense. Yeah. I mean, the balls this woman had, and that's all we know is to have those balls too. Like there's no fear, no fear. And um, my brother told me this story not too long ago. And I didn't know this because I was, I'm five years younger than him. But he told me we used to have a gardener. We had a really nice house in Lebanon. So we had two gardeners, um, a beautiful garden that we had chickens, we, everything we needed. We didn't really need to go to the store. So this one gardener lived in West Beirut. And she would take him food and money sometimes when they're out. So my brother told me that she would smuggle also M16s she she had she was working with some Lebanese militia whoa I'm like are you kidding me <laughs> mommy how much more of a badass she can be this woman really and and she held it all together like I would have never known but yeah he told he's like yeah she was she's crazy and we were in the in the car with her oh my god Again, covered with parsley and tomatoes and bulgur. Like, yeah, she's going to go make tabbouleh for a shit ton of people. <laughs> but, you know, throughout all these intertwining threads of this amazing blanket, there's food. Yeah, of and course. And that's what kept us together. Yeah. Always. How did your parents meet? Um, Africa. My mom was visiting um, in Africa, and they met in Nigeria. Huh. And... He just promised her the world pretty much, and she needed that. Being growing up illiterate and working really hard for everything she had, um, that security was very inviting. Yeah. And they got married, but he was hardly there just because of his job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Um, yeah. Let's, uh, let's get into the food a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So, growing up, 
pretty much cooking in a bunker. Mm -hmm. I mean, well. Yeah. I mean, we definitely had a kitchen set up down there. We had a kitchen that was really a nice big kitchen. She, I mean, I would wake up to smells every day. This woman started cooking when she woke up and stopped cooking when we all went to bed. Yeah. And that's just runs in our veins. Everybody does that. It's not just her. Every household, everybody, every man, every woman know know how to cook and love it. Yeah. Was that so with your father being American, was there like did he influence the food American wise? Thanksgiving. Towards her? Yeah. Okay. We, we did have we have turkey for Christmas or lamb or what have you, but we definitely adopted the Thanksgiving tradition. Yeah. And we did we did do some American, but not really. Yeah. He he did enjoy some American things that he missed that my mom would do, but nothing that would stand in my mind or memory but turkey. For right. Thanksgiving. <laughs> what is this bland giant bird? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't do stuffing like they, we do here now, but it's like rice and lamb stuffed. Uh, that's the stuffing with pine nuts and almonds. Ooh. Mm-hmm. It's really, oh, that it's really nice. All spice flavors or seven spice, pretty similar to the holiday spices here, you know, the yeah, cinnamon. Yeah, because like a baharat spice is kind very, of similar yes, to like That's a, it. It's uh, baharat, which yeah. means peppers. Is that what it means? Mm-hmm. Huh, never knew that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, that always reminds me of like a Christmas seasoning. Mm-hmm. Almost. Yeah. You can use it kind like, of interchangeably. Like apple apple spice um, pie, apple pie spice. Yeah, clove yeah. and cinnamon. And, yeah. Yeah. Huh. And it's so funny. It's like you find these spices scattered all over the world, like Jamaica. They use the same spices. Oh, it's yeah. It's completely different flavors. Yeah. Mexico, which has a huge... Lebanese influence the more I dug I love history and food I found out that we were in Mexico and like they have shawarma machines everywhere really (laughs) yeah but it's pastor and they're just shaving me and like what what is this yeah I just looked into it more and it's Lebanese influence tortilla pita it's cinnamon you know oregano all these warm spices but taste completely different right lime not lemon (laughs) It's pretty fascinating. Interesting. Is there like a big French influence on the cuisine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Where does that show up? So it shows up more in the preparation of detail, um, OCD-ness, <laughs> butter. <laughs> Mise en place. Yes, yeah. And, you know, the, like preparing to bully, I don't do it anymore like we do it back home. It's like... Just put the sprigs all together. The stems are fine. Just chop them really, really finely. Where, as before, we had to pick stem and like put it all together like a bouquet where the stems are just non-existent. And you're only shaving it once. You can't cut it more than, more than once. Then you're pulverizing the herb and it becomes mushy and watery and it takes away from everything. So I think that has a lot of... Fr- a lot of French influence, um, a lot of bechamel sauces too. That oh wow, that you see more in households, and not so much in restaurants. We hardly went to restaurants. Yeah, we did when we were out, you know, in the mountains, um, just for you know a drive, and we would stop at a restaurant next to a river, and you. I don't remember being menus either. It's just Mesa. Well, it was a war zone. Yeah, but <laughs> still. <laughs> still, it's like you sit down and it's the usual. It's Mesa. Just bring it out. Little plates after little plates after little plates of chicken, hummus, dips, salads, veggies. Um, yeah, there's that goat and lamb hanging there that we're having that meat from immediately. Yeah. You know, it's just fish lots of fish so good <laughs> so good you i can't serve wait a lot to of go. fish at your place do you? no because uh, i don't want to messing it up <laughs> <laughs> we did a lot of sardines whole fried sardines oh yeah friday fish friday like um fish and chips 
people don't like to eat whole fish and I don't want to serve it any differently. Yeah. Um, mm, it has bones in it. Well, you know, work your way around that. It's fun that way, you know? Like, it, that's... The, you eat the head, you eat the tail. You, some of the bones you can even eat, you know? Yeah. It's hard to bring that culture here without being judged. Yeah. And fish spoils quickly. And I was finding myself, if it's not fine dining, if it's casual, you know, I don't want to do you know, a, a fillet of fish battered. I, I, I don't want to do that. I want to do the, the traditional way. And sometimes the traditional way doesn't work. And I was just wasting money and I don't like to do that in food. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. If you could make whatever your favorite stuff here, what would it be of the fish based things? Um, I would make some kejarra, which translates into spicy fish. And it's this whole fish covered with tarator, which is tahini sauce, and just like dumped with parsley and tomatoes. You can't even see the fish, just the head. Huh. And you just, so good. Awesome. Yeah. And then you can also make a dip out of it and mix nuts in it and just pull the flesh and make a dip. Um, our restaurant here requires a lot of prep and to keep the prices where they're at and my labor costs where it is I have to be very limited to how much I share yeah we make everything except the pita and with my whip watching who's cutting the parsley for the tabbouleh there's only two people that do that there it's I'm so I'm such a control freak when it comes to that because I just want to deliver it how I know. And my mom in the back of my head, yeah, Susie, <laughs> they're not doing it right. No, but they do such a wonderful job. I just don't want to add more to the to the list. I think yeah. it's it's good. And when I do pop up dinners or market dinners, you know, I I can I can do that then, um, and I will when it slows down a little bit for me. Yeah. Where I will make kibinaye, which is raw kibbe. You know, oh, wow. it's delicious, but it's like, it's a fine tartare. Mm-hmm. And people get weirded out by eating raw meat and raw liver and fat, raw fat. Like we, the sheep we have there is completely different than the sheep that's here. The fat from the tail is consumed raw with onions and raw liver. Oh, wow. These things I used to eat like popcorn. Yeah. I'm having a hard time thinking I would eat them now just because I've been so out of it for so long. Yeah. But I'll try it. You know, it's everything raw, raw offals and raw meat and raw veggies. And that's what you eat. And it's delicious. And I have... Maybe one in a hundred people ask me if I'll make kibbinaye for them. <laughs> so if I have raw meat on the menu, like tartare, but I'm not a fine dining restaurant, I'm going to waste oh, yeah. a lot. of. And I use, you know, local. Yeah. Uh, organic meats, clean meats. So yeah, I hate to keep going back to the price point, but, you know, right. I want to be a longevity place. Yeah. And if I have only a handful of people that will eat the raw things, yeah. then I'm not going to really do them unless it's a special dinner. Right, right, of course. When's the last time you went back to Lebanon? 98. Oh, wow. Yes. Been a while. So it was really hard for us to go yeah. because it's really expensive. And when you're there, you're not going for a week or even two. Right. You're going for months, yeah. one or two. And... Losing everything in Lebanon, we had basically $5,000 and a suitcase full of clothes coming here. It was, And my mom being illiterate, she couldn't get work. Mm. She babysat mostly. And my brother was here before us, and he was into diving. So that was his profession, teaching diving. Um, very young, and I couldn't get a job when I was here, really. So it was hard for us, money-wise. So in 98, we went back. We saved and went back for a little over a month. And I've been 
just dreaming of going back. And it's most likely going to happen in June. Oh, wow. This year coming awesome. Up. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Yeah. My brother, I'm taking my niece, too, and I. And we're going to go. I might go for two months. Oh, wow. And when I go, I'm, I'm apprenticing in a bakery somewhere. Really? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Because I suck at it. <laughs> I'm a horrible baker. I hate it. But <laughs> don't, don't even try that bread. That's my terrible <laughs> bread that I bake. <laughs> it's um, just so precise, you know. And like writing recipes for Gypsy Queen was a heartache and a headache and almost impossible. Having this guy fa- a pinch here, a pinch there. Yeah, mommy, how much water goes into the rice will just dip your finger in the first line above your nail is where it should hit, you know, or yeah, it's, it's like a pinch that fits in the palm of your hand. Okay. <laughs> How are you going to translate that different Everyone's palms, different you know? Sizes. Yeah, exactly. Like the amount of bulgur to that goes into bully is a handful. Literally you reach into this bag of bulgur and you reach and count how many parsley bunches to how many bulgur bunches handfuls you should put in there <laughs> yeah so baking is gonna be pretty challenging for me but I really want to learn how to make sage bread how to make um pita bread and I don't know I, I, it's still a dream that hey I want to have an authentic middle eastern bakery yeah but I need uh em Ali, this lady is known worldwide by people like me that want to go back and learn she teaches saj bread what is saj bread saj is um it's a vessel that looks like an upside down walk huh so it's it's metal it's rounded and then there's flames that come underneath it to get it hot and these women I would like to think still to this day, scattered on the side of the road, going to mountains, making this bread. And it's paper thin. It's like you can, it's almost like a crepe, but it's huge. Huh. And there's, they, they, they just put it on the sage, get it toasty, flip it around. There's a pillow that you transport it, literally like a pillow. And you put it on there and then they just start piling up on top of each other. Once they're cool, it's folded, put in a bag, and... Huh. So it cooks on the outside of the pot? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. it's Think of a domed crepe. Yeah. But thinner. Like huh. a wok. Like, literally, turn a wok over yeah. and have propane heat underneath it. Huh. And that's saj. Awesome. So, manushe, or manaish, it's this um, thyme bread. It's za'atar and dough, and you bake it in this oven, but you can also do it on saj. It's huh. delicious. I really want to... There's only one woman <laughs> that teaches it in Lebanon. Whoa. Mm-hmm. I think she's a Palestinian woman, and her name is Em Ali, which means mother of Ali. So every woman is named by the eldest son, like my mom. My brother's name is Danny, so she's Em Danny. Yeah. That's a weird form it's of patriarchy. Totally. <laughs> I'm like, what about M. Susie? What the fuck? Right. Yeah. It's huh. that men are babied by their mothers. Clearly. In all of the Mediterranean, I think. It's not just Lebanon. Right. Right. Huh. Yeah. Um, what? Uh, so have you reached out to her at all that? All that uh, the... Emale? Yeah. I don't know how to reach her. I just have to go to the souk in Beirut, and there's a farmer's market, and I can find her there. Wow. <laughs> I was in Amsterdam last year, and I went to the sageria. It's a Lebanese sageria, and they have the big sage in a window. It's a hole in the wall, and they're making bread there. So I met the owner. I'm like, uh, it brought tears to my eyes. That's how delicious and close to home it was. So he's like, I just had to go to Beirut and this woman, you, Emale, that's who you got to find. And she will teach you. I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's what I'll do. 
You gotta start combing the Twitters for anybody that's like going to their tag regularly there and be like, can you go talk to her and tell her that I want to. <laughs> There's a guy there um, that's the, the slow food movement leader there. Huh. He's like, yeah, so we're friends on Facebook. I never thought about this, but I need to reach out to him. He was on Anthony Bourdain's show. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, it strikes me that, that, I mean, it had to be, how old were you when you came to the U.S.? Uh, 16. 16. Just, just almost 16. Yeah. Four months shy. That's a really rough time to be just like ripped out from all your friends. Uh, You know, all I wanted was to get out. Yeah. And when I came here, all I wanted was to go back. Yeah. It's funny how that works. Um, he, school the school works a little differently there so you don't have to be in districts you can be um one side of lebanon and go to a particular school so because of the war and its um, back and forthness we were out of school a lot and my mom really wanted us to get a good education as she didn't yeah so the idea was finally when we couldn't, we didn't have anything else, and my father just stopped communication and sending money to take care of us. That's when we're like, let's go. Let's go. My brother was already here. We just should go back and to, we should go to America and be together. And then yeah. we can always revisit family. So we went, we got in a boat. To Cyprus and from Cyprus to the U.S. And that's how we most people got out of Lebanon because the airport was closed. Yeah. And then we came here and in my mind, you know, watching Top Gun and all these American movies and <laughs> Dynasty and all, all of that. I'm like, oh, America is great. It's just going to be a bunch of blondes with blue eyes and it's going to be a good time. And I come to... St- Stewart, Florida. (laughs) What the fuck? Please take me back. Like, it's a bunch of old people. There's, fashion-wise, we're like five years ahead. Um, People, because it was in the late 80s and early 90s, Lebanon had a really bad reputation and still does, you know? All you see on media is the bad things. So yeah. I was immediately a terrorist. I rode a camel and I lived in a tent. And I was just, I'm not black, I'm not white, and yeah. I'm not accepted by anyone. Yeah. You know, my friends were the foreign exchange students. And it, it, it sucked really bad. So I decided to throw a party <laughs> when my brother was out of town and my mom was still in Lebanon. And it went bad. I mean, it went out of control. Um, Go on. God, I've never seen cocaine in my life. And at 16, there it was, beer everywhere. And people abusing alcohol. There, there's no drinking age. So it's no big deal. Hash is normal. Right. You know, that's what the parents smoked. And it smelled so good. And when I went back, I'm like, look, you either you either find it for me or I'm going to find it myself. <laughs> I remember that good smelling stuff that you guys used to smoke. But, yeah, I had that party and we knew British English, not American English. So get teased like this girl. Oh, my God, your your brother's going to have a cow if he finds out you had this party. Well, where is he going to put the fucking cow? We can't have pets in here. Like little <laughs> shit like that. And then and then just the the outcastness of it all just really made me not want to be here. Yeah. But I couldn't go back. Yeah. So we just had to make it work. Wow. How long did you guys stay there in Florida? Uh my brother still is there. Oh wow. My mom passed away 4 years ago and uh she's she was there in that house that we had, you know, lived in. Yeah. Um, but she wanted to go back so bad. Yeah. And, you know, everything at first, I'm like, God, you're, you're so picky. You're just bitching about everything. Nothing tasted right. Nothing was good enough. Yeah. Like the homeland. 
and I find myself doing the same <laughs> things now. Like, oh, that peach tastes like a potato. Why? Because <laughs> it's December and we're eating peaches. That's why. Right. It's little things like that, uh, that we're such food snobs, but... Why does this tomato taste like cardboard? Cardboard, exactly. It's yeah. like, hmm, yeah. Uh, but I can't wait to go back. Yeah. And huh. I'm afraid that I won't come back. <laughs> just deposit my check, boys, please. You just run the restaurant. Yeah. I'm opening one here. Just take take half and just give me half and I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, like, I don't know, I can't, I keep, in my mind, I keep coming back to the dichotomy it must have been to be in a place that is war-torn, but is also a place that, I mean, it doesn't sound like you guys were unhappy. We weren't. We weren't. It's it's crazy. Yeah. There was one incident that, so I told you where we lived, we didn't really get hit that hard. Mm-hmm. but we definitely spend a lot of time because they were close. You know, you hear that. Yeah. You don't know how close it is. You just stay in. One morning, I think I was maybe 12. And no, I, I was younger than that. I remember, so our house, we had a villa, and it was built out of the rocks, but the whole side was all windows, and we can see across from us the short, distant mountain that had a mid-rise there. Mm-hmm. And we had a huge balcony. And we, I hear, I remember my brother was watching Robinson Crusoe because he was obsessed. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to go on an island and be Robinson Crusoe. He had even a list. It was so funny. I need like this and that. Anyway, I um, hear this boom. Didn't think anything of it. I look up in the sky from the inside of the house through the balcony, and I see this white stripe of clouds, of smoke, and all of a sudden, the house shakes. And then with within seconds, I look across to that mid-rise, and there's a mushroom of fire. So what happened, there's a Syrian plane flying over the zone that it shouldn't be, and Israel was occupying Lebanon a little bit. Um, at one point, one of the presidents was working with Israel to help get the West Beirut back to what it was. So Israeli soldiers shot this plane. The wing of the plane landed on our roof. And then the rest of the plane landed, crashed into that mid-rise, maybe oh about, God. yeah. And you felt the heat, and you, it's like watching an action movie. And immediate reaction, you're just running. You're running to the shelter, you know. And going down, we get in the shelter, and it's quiet for about an hour. And then everybody's curious. So we go out. And we walk over there. Luckily, nobody got killed in this uh. accident. This lady went crazy, though, that lived in that building, she ran out. She was in the shower. She ran outside naked and went crazy. Like, can you imagine taking a shower and then bam? Honestly. Yeah. So the Israeli soldiers came and kind of blocked the area, put the fire out, get the debris of the 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 plane. And before they got there, because it took them a few hours, my brother and his friends were digging in through the remains of the plane and found the watch of the pilot. So it was a Syrian pilot in a Russian plane. I wow. mean, it's so complicated, the p- politics of it all. Of course. But it was, it was gone. It was immediate. There was, it happened, and then boom. Yeah. We were, we were like making friends with the Israeli hot soldiers and learning how to write our names in Hebrew. And life went on. How old were you when that happened? I think, I think around eight, seven oh, or wow. eight. I want to say 12, but I even remembered the nightgown that I had on, Donald Duck and pistachio. And <laughs> it's crazy what you remember the details of. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, we were happy. 
we 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 live to the fullest every minute of every day yeah it's got to be a different mindset approaching each day yeah it's i don't know if because you're born in it and even the people that were not born in it they they you adjust i don't know i don't i don't think a lot of people can do it yeah but it's still like that there today do you see yourself now like carrying that over or do you see yourself getting jaded in places because of I, living here now instead of in I want to think like I c- I still carry it over. Yeah. I I I do like um you know everyone's like oh, I wouldn't go to Lebanon. I I'd just be scared. I'm like I don't care. Yeah. It's it is what it is and that's 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 what we know. But yeah, I've been here more than I've lived there. So is it all talk or I'd like to think that, oh, yeah, I can do it. Even when I travel to third world countries, I'm the one that's going down that sketchy road. Right. Of course. <laughs> I'm the one talking to that stranger, you know, but with reservation, like street smart is definitely embedded in me. Yeah. Totally. Knowing, knowing when not to ask that question. Yeah, or. and n- feeling when you know there's shadiness going around. Yeah. Intuition. Yeah. I'd like to think I, I still got that. <laughs> In these mean streets of Asheville. <laughs> the hood. <laughs> when did you move to Asheville? 2012. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. I moved from Atlanta, and I just... So... Coming to America, I was very, un- I hate to say it, I was disappointed by how people treated, how it just was flat in Florida. So I told myself and my mom, I'm going to become super American and move as soon as I turn 18. And that devastated her. And I did. I moved to the nearest northern city, which was Atlanta. <laughs> So far north. Uh, I lived there for 10 years. I visited Asheville. I went back, packed, drove, moved. <laughs> that was that. Nice. It just reminded me of a community that I missed. Yeah. <coughs> what did you do when you moved here? I worked at Tressa's. Nice. That's until, a real introduction to Asheville. Until a car followed me after work at 4 o'clock in the morning. To, to the house, um, and then I stopped that, and Doc Chase was opening, and being in Atlanta, I was very familiar with Doc Chase, so I got a job there, and then I got a job at Corner Kitchen, maybe like seven years after working at Doc Chase, and did both. Um, I saved some money. I raised some money. I got a food truck. I got me a food truck. <laughs> and three years battled, ago, like battled the powers of Asheville to get you, your food truck. I did. I uh, I was determined, and you know, I I do that sometimes. Once I have something, yeah, that I know I want, I I go get it. Yeah. And it can be a battle. It could be years. I get to it. Oh, I was sitting in those city council meetings. I remember. Yeah, <laughs> those dicks. What is that filibustering? Y- yeah. Meeting after meeting took almost two years. Yeah, it um, it was good. I'm glad now. There's over a hundred food trucks. Yeah. And I'm Gypsy who? Gypsy Queen? Who are you? <laughs> we don't. We don't know that one. It's okay. <laughs> I'm glad I did something good for the community. Of course. Spartacus led the way. <laughs> I love him. Spartacus led the way. How's Spartacus holding up? Oh, my God. Barely. <laughs> like this past year, like we sunk in $6,000 in Spartacus, but I have a hard time letting go right. of my gladiator. Of course. Um, you know, he's even if he doesn't work anymore, he's going to be like the ruin. <laughs> just park him out front that's where he is right now (laughs) usually when we're done for the season he's parked up front and he'll stay it's like free signage yeah of course without without signage permits you're just gonna have like a row of dead trucks eventually 20 years from now just a circle around the park spartacus brutus (laughs) yeah it's uh it's fun it's good 
I, I, I just, Spartacus got me the restaurant. Yeah. Five years later, you know, um, it was such a journey, hard journey because even if you have your, people think because you own a small business that you have money, which is just not the case. Right. But trying to go beyond Spartacus and open a brick and mortar was impossible for me. No capital, no collateral. Family has nothing. Yeah. I don't have a car. Like, w- what can you take from me if I fail from giving you your money back? Nothing. Yeah. Until, like, I built a name for five years. I survived being in business for five years. And then I went to the Small Business Administration and score and they helped me get this super tiny loan we did everything ourselves in there and you know the only way we did it because it was an existing restaurant already too oh wow yeah so it was already it it was already the hood as you know is the million dollar hood yeah Yeah. the hood was already there so we were able to do it and we opened with 37 dollars in the bank I didn't give a flying hoot. Like I was like, it's a very I don't short care. Cash <laughs> I don't care if I have to just cook out of the food truck and just let people sit in here. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm doing it. I mean, you know, the people that lend me the money didn't know that. Like, I, they wouldn't. Not everyone would have opened with thirty-seven dollars in the bank and ten people on payroll. Right. Just I just had to do it, and it it worked out. <laughs> yeah, well, very, you still very had, it was a good, I feel like it was a smart setup because you still had the truck generating mm-hmm. revenue. Mm-hmm. Then you have the restaurant. That's it was a smart way to go into it. Yeah, and uh, we really, I mean, we bought the equipment. the The loan was fifty thousand dollars. Oh wow. So it went through, you know, buying paint to paint, buying... That goes quickly. It went quickly and just buying the whole setup of the line that we have and putting a walk-in cooler instead of, you know, reach-ins. And we have multiple reach-ins now, but because of the amount of prep that takes to make the food, we needed space. And yeah, yeah, it went, it went, it went quickly. Wow. Crazy. Wee. Um... trying to think if I what else I need to ask you I know I've, I've kept you here like 50 minutes already really to, time yeah. flies <laughs> I need to let you get back to so work. um I remember telling you the story about fishing oh yeah and you loved it let's go into that okay one. tell me about fishing so it's it's like people might like their eyes bulge out of their their heads but it was so much fun for us too I was such a tomboy too so I hung out with the men any hunting things we had to do. So fishing. Um, we made we made little explosions <laughs> that we threw in the water and killed the fish, and then we went diving for them. So the men, you know, they would do these little TNT. <laughs> yeah. And at the crack of dawn before, before like the MPs were doing their rounds of just making sure everybody's okay we'd go out um to shore and there each shore kind of has a bunch of rocks put down so you can walk further in the water yeah um so that's what we do we'd go in there and we throw it in light it up throw it in boom and then wait a little bit as soon as the sun comes out you go diving and i i had no mask um one-piece suit is very important for this because when you see those little shiny things on the ground of the water, the dead fish, you just put as many in your bathing suit as you can. And, you know, I got scratched from the the little spiky things on fish. <laughs> right, the yeah. spines. Yeah, and uh, we'd go on shore, empty our bathing suit, and go back for more. And that memory... And then, you know, I would clean the fish, scale it, gut it with my mom, and fry it that same day, and it was awesome. It was great. I 
would love to do that again. Fishing with dynamite. <laughs> Fishing with dynamite. How crazy is that? Should, like, really? You should try that in the lakes out here. See how it goes. <laughs> Are you going to get me out of jail? Because well, I still get frisk hardcore <laughs> at airports. We, we wouldn't have to, like, use real dynamite. You could probably get away with a cherry bomb. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's meth labs around. Surely there's other worse things happening. It's true. It's true. No one would notice. No one would catch you. No. Although no. explosions are a little less common here than they were in Beirut at the time, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can start a tradition. <laughs> fishing with dynamite. Winter fishing. <laughs> Was there anything we haven't covered that you? No, like I, I don't. I don't think so. We we talked about growing up, politics, food, <laughs> fun. Yeah, I think we went over most of the bullet points. I definitely wanted to hit, but well, I definitely appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you and, uh, for having me. We'll have to catch up once you get back. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Definitely awesome. Thank cool. you. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Susie Phillips from Gypsy Queen Cuisine. Please go check out her restaurant on Patton Avenue here in Asheville or her new cafe, Simple, on Haywood Road in West Asheville or just find her food truck at the next festival you wind up at. The Second Helping is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. Produce the show, write the music, mix it, yada, yada, yada. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our marketing and development. Be sure to head to our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, to stream full episodes of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, read stories from the show, and see the incredible artwork from the contributing artists. And don't miss new episodes on 103.7 WPBM, the first Friday of every month, always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. Wow.